And don't you guys want to be the winner? And and it was a really pivotal change in our our perspective where we said, yeah, let's 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 go after that that big audacious goal. Let's let's raise some money. Let's swing for the fences and let's try to be the categorical winner in this space. Let's try to not only be the winner but create this new vision for even how lawyers use technology overall. Today on Afternoon Tea, I am super duper duper. I'm going to go three times there. Super duper duper excited because uh, we get to speak with the Jack Newton uh, from Clio, founder of Clio. Uh, let me let me just set this up, if you please. As the CEO and co-founder of Clio and a pioneer in cloud-based legal technology, Jack Newton has spearheaded efforts to educate the legal community on the security, ethics, and privacy issues surrounding cloud computing and has become a nationally recognized author and speaker of these topics. He co-founded and is president of the Legal Cloud Computing Association, or as we like to say, the LCCA, a consortium of leading cloud computing providers with a mandate to lead, or to help accelerate the adoption of cloud computing in the legal industry, and is the author of the client-centered law firm, which I think is pretty cool, um, a bestseller that's helping law firms thrive in today's experience-driven era. He was also named a 2019 fellow uh, to the College of Law Practice management sits on the board of AI-powered legal research provider Ross Intelligence and is an investor and advisor to early-stage legal tech startups. Jack is also the host of The Daily Matters, a podcast dedicated to hearing from legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. In Daily Matters, he explores where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what legal professionals can do to position themselves for success. And I'm hoping give me great feedback because you're an expert at this. But Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Excited to be here. Oh, definitely, definitely. Well, you know what? It'd be hard pressed to have anyone not know who Cleo is. In fact, I remember I was in San Francisco five years ago for an event. And I was talking to some fellow at this, you know, pitch event. And he's like, yeah, you know, I want to do this in the cloud. And I'm like, well, that sounds a lot like Cleo. He goes, everyone tells me that. And he just walked away. <laughs> and I realized, wow. So you know what? I mean, this is this is still early days. And I wasn't, I knew that Cleo was growing, but that's when I realized, oh, you're a real big thing. Like you are a real big thing, which is which is fantastic because we need more big things in Vancouver. And, and it's so nice to look we up do. to we'll tell you. We truly do. But tell you what, why don't we just set it easy? Can you just Tell me the story behind Clio. Like, how how did you found it? Why did you found it? Can you can you can you set that up for me, please? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Clio, we founded way back in two thousand and eight. So incredibly, uh, we're we're twelve years old uh, and and still feel young. <laughs> we you know, but in internet terms, that's obviously <laughs> it's like dog years, right? We're we're like an elder <laughs> statesman of cloud-based software, uh, and especially so in, in legal, uh, where we were the first cloud-based practice management system uh, ever brought to the legal industry. And you know, over the last 12 years, we've done a lot to educate uh, lawyers and, and legal professionals of all stripes what it means to be cloud-based and how to run your practice in the cloud. And, and way back in 2007, when you know Ryan Govero, my co-founder, and I had the light bulb go off and had this idea for uh, for Clio, it really orbited around you know a few things that were brought together, like a lot of startup ideas, with some amount of of serendipity in the mix. So we saw you know on one hand 
cloud computing emerging as this technology trend in 2007 that we saw was inevitably going to transform every industry on the planet. You know, it's just one of these, you know, technology transformation waves like, like mobile computing, like the original PC. That's, you know, you get a few of these big transformations in your lifetime. And if you, if you catch one of these waves, it can be really powerful. And I think we, we sure. lucked out and we, we, we caught this wave and we saw, you know, and, and Salesforce was having some very early success. We were already seeing a lot of evidence of the cloud being this big thing. And, and the way we approached the, the opportunity to build a business was almost the, the technology wave of cloud computing was one part of the equation. And the next was, was figuring out what industry do we want to apply this technology to? Mm -hmm. And I described myself and Ryan in those early days being uh, like, two hammers looking for a nail. Like we, we just knew this was going to be the tool and we knew it had transformative capabilities, but we just needed to find the right industry to apply it to. And we landed on legal through, uh, you know, again, some amount of serendipity where Ryan was working at Gowlings uh, as their IT manager. Gowlings mm -hmm. is, as, as you mm -hmm. probably know, the biggest law firm in Canada, one of the biggest mm -hmm. in the in the world. And he saw inside Gowlings how technology was uh, was used in running a law firm, or maybe better put, how it wasn't used all that effectively in running a law firm, uh, and and saw a lot of opportunity for doing a better job of of applying these technologies to help make lawyers more productive and more effective. And concurrent with that that original uh, insight from Gowlings, Ryan and I were also doing some consulting work with. The Law Society of BC, which is the regula regulator of lawyers in, in BC. And one of the interesting discussions we had over a lunch out with the director of practice standards at the LSBC was a conversation around the fact that most of their ethics and malpractice related issues at the LSBC related to their solo and small firm membership, rather than the lawyers practicing at these big firms. And mm -hmm. that intuitively makes sense, right? Small, small lawyers, Small firm lawyers, rather, you know, they've they've got a lot of balls in the air. They've got little to no no support staff. Mm -hmm. They're 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 just they're juggling a lot of glass balls. But lawyers at a at a big firm, of course, have you know small army of paralegals and support staff, making sure they don't they don't drop any balls. So the the opportunity we saw was to help bring these cloud technologies to bear for solos and small firms and help make them run their entire practice effectively, efficiently help them avoid malpractice and other related issues and to do it for a, a low monthly subscription fee. And this was back in the day where, you know, you're up against all the, the on-prem incumbent mm -hmm. competitors. And we just had the usual, you know, cloud advantages. We had low cost of ownership. We had more accessible tools. It was easier to use. And and the one thing I'll comment on to, to conclude kind of the origin story of Clio, that was one thing that was very counterintuitive to me as a technology guy coming into the legal industry from the outside in. I believed most lawyers practiced in those big firms. My, my perception of lawyers was shaped by <laughs> network TV and Ally mm -hmm. McBeal and, and, and all of that. And I thought, you know, there was, uh, you know, most lawyers were like Danny Crane practicing in these big thousand person law firms and the, the fancy offices and all of that. The reality is, is that the legal industry is 
uh, a very SMB industry. 80% of lawyers practice in firms of 10 lawyers or less. 50% of all lawyers practice as solos. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, a very SMB, even micro SMB market that you know, Ryan and I realized was was an even better fit for cloud-based tools by virtue of being SMB. So sure. we launched Clio back in March of 2008, the, the beta version of Clio at ABA Tech Show, just me and Ryan. So mm-hmm. we're, we're, you know, we're uh, actually this month in, in March celebrating the anniversary of, of launching that, uh, that beta incredibly wow. 13, 13 years ago. <laughs> Congratulations. And uh <laughs> And yeah, fast forward, uh, you know, 12 or 13 years and Clio is now a 550 person uh, organization, still headquartered here in Vancouver, but with offices in in Calgary, Toronto, Dublin and Los Angeles. Amazing. We're planning on adding 250 people this, this year. Uh, it's the most widely used cloud-based practice management system in the world now with over 150,000 users worldwide. And uh, yeah, we've got you know broad ambitions to continue transforming the the legal industry. So even though we've been at this for for 13 years now, we're we in a lot of ways still feel like we're just getting started. Still, still a lot of problems to solve in the industry. You're saying there that lot lots of problems to solve. Lots lots to be done in terms of more fulsomely bringing you know not not just the tools but the whole client journey and the workflows you have with clients into the cloud. Mm. And I, I think what we've seen thanks to COVID is that that whole process has been really dramatically accelerated. We've seen for sure 10 years of transformation happen in, in, in 12 months and, and we're, we're being looked to by the industry as someone that can help them navigate this period of change and help bring what has been a very on-premise, a very bricks and mortar, a very face-to-face kind of industry mm-hmm. and bring that to uh, a more internet-based world. Very cool. Very cool. So first off, the, the date makes me interested, 2000, 2008, um, because this is actually a common theme of, of, of the people with whom I'm speaking to at the podcast is 2008 seems to be a very good year for inception because of obviously, you know, not just cloud computing, not just the centralization of, you know, information and the demand around that, but also because that's when the economic crisis hit and things changed. Did that, did that have any infliction point on that too? Or is this just a, the technology's right, let's do it. Was, was there anything with, with that as well? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, t- 2008 was a good vintage. There's a lot of great companies <laughs> oh, yeah. founded uh, founded around then. And and yeah, I mean, you rewind to 2008 uh, and, and just as a time capsule, uh, Y Combinator had just started up, was getting its first cohort of, mm-hmm. of companies out the door like Dropbox. Uh, uh, the iPhone was just released, you know, in this, the, the world back then, we were, all of our customers were using Blackberries and our number one feature request was to develop a Blackberry app, which, which thank God we never invested the cycles in developing. Uh, so a very different landscape. And, and by the way, I, I remember um, the, the challenge of raising money back in 2008, 2009. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the journey Ryan and I went through in, mm-hmm. in 2008, 2009, where, you know, we really first started out wanting to bootstrap this thing entirely and mm-hmm. had really subscribed to the the notion that uh, David Hanemeyer Hansen and J- Jason Freed popularized around their their 37 signals company and, and Basecamp. Mm-hmm. And, 
uh, the, this viewpoint that they advocated for really effectively, which was you, you don't need anything other than your customers to support your, your business and, and, and scaling. Uh, they had a very anti-VC uh, view on the world to, to put it in, in less profane terms than they do. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Ryan and I had really signed up for that and, and it really appealed to us. When we started Clio, we had very modest ambitions. We, we hoped this thing would uh, you know, eventually grow into something that would throw off, you know, enough money that Ryan and I could live off of it and, and keep the staff count at two. Like we really wanted this to be a lifestyle business <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and thought, Hey, if we execute well, this thing could throw off, you know, two or 300 grand a year. Uh, we'd have some left over after expenses and, and he and I could, uh, you know, could, could have a great lifestyle business that, that would be successful when we started to hit this initial traction in, in 2008, um, we started thinking about going after the market opportunity a bit more aggressively. Mm-hmm. And it was actually an early investor in Clio, a guy named Christoph Jans, uh, who had just, he, he was a guy based in Germany that, uh, th- this is one of my favorite stories about the Clio origin <laughs> story, by the way, mm-hmm. is, you know, Ryan and I had decided that like, hey, let, let's maybe pursue this a bit more aggressively. This, we're seeing way more demand in the marketplace than we ever expected. We're just being inundated with phone calls and, and, and emails and feature requests. Like this thing was uh, creating its own gravity. And it was really clear that this was not going to be a two-man show. So we said, let's go raise some money. Uh, let's go raise some angel money to start with. And, and then maybe think about uh, uh, just hiring a few people to help us out. So <laughs> we... We started that more or less concurrent when the financial crisis hit. And <laughs> I, I remember, you know, <laughs> pounding the pavement across every one of these angel forums in, in Alberta, where I lived at the time, and in British Columbia, where Ryan lived at the time, and doing this pitch to any investor that would listen. And we got this, this super frustrating feedback, which was, this is a super great pitch. It's actually one of the best pitches we've ever heard but we're not writing checks right now. Like we're just not. And, and there was, you know, if you can remember the feeling back then, it was almost, you know, I saw echoes of it when, when COVID first hit, mm-hmm. but the, the sentiment back in 2008 was there, there was literally concern about the financial system as we knew it collapsing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we saw this fear in investors and nobody would invest in the company. So Ryan and I were getting pretty, you know, we had raised about $100,000 in friends and family financing. Uh, so that was, that was great. Um, but as it, when it came to any kind of angel funding at all, we were trying to raise about a million dollars and just hitting this brick wall. Um, you know, again, a, a little time capsule I remember from that, that era was the cover of The Economist was a picture of all the big banks like JP Morgan and Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers circling around a drain (laughs) and the headline was literally is this the end (laughs) you know so this was kind of the economic climate we're trying to raise money in and I got this cold email uh Ryan and I both got this cold email actually Mm -hmm. from a guy named Christoph Jans that was a German-based investor that went straight to Ryan's spam folder straight to my (laughs) spam folder oh gosh but the the contents of this email uh Ryan ended up digging up and I'll, this is this is such an incredible story because Ryan was on some really long drawn out customer support call mm-hmm. where he 
wondered probably for the first time in his life, I wonder what's in my spam folder and, and just went there to kill some time while this call was dragging on and, and saw in this spam folder, this email from Christoph that was number one from a web.de email domain. So mm -hmm. it looked kind of suspicious to, to, to Google probably. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it also talked about an investment opportunity and his interest <laughs> in investing in Clio. And I've, I've still got this email uh, and I've, I've used it in, in a lot of presentations, you know, both internally to externally to talk about the role of luck in creating mm -hmm. a company because this email that, that Google, uh, you know, treated appropriately probably as, as like a flavor of a Nigerian prince email <laughs> scam, it, it, it put forward, you know, Ryan read it and it was this guy, Christoph Jan saying, I just sold my, my internet company. I've started angel investing. I just invested in my first company. It was a company called Zendesk. Uh, and he invested in Zendesk when it was four guys in Copenhagen wow. uh, hanging out in a bar together, building this, this support tool. Uh, and Clio was his second investment. And, and he, he reached out, said, I'm really interested in what you guys are doing. Can we jump on a call? Uh, Ryan and I, he, Ryan forwards this to me and says, this looks legit. Should we have the conversation? I, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it does look legit. Let's have the conversation. Talk to Christoph. He's super engaged, super passionate about getting involved with us. Um, and, you know, this guy halfway around the world in Germany is willing to cut the first check as an angel investor into Clio. And uh, the one almost gating conversation he had with us, though, before he wrote that check mm -hmm. was like, what do you guys want to do with this thing? Mm -hmm. And we told him about our ambitions to build this lifestyle business. And, 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 and we, we, we said, we don't think we need VC. We don't need to go raise millions of dollars. We just need a little bit of fuel to prime the pump here. And what Christoph persuaded us of that, that really, I think, you know, we can credit him for helping put us on the trajectory we've been on, which is, look, it can be very hard to build a SaaS business by bootstrapping. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to build a SaaS business by bootstrapping for a few reasons. But one is all of your customer acquisition costs are completely front loaded. You'll see that positive cash flow over time, thanks to mm -hmm. the lifetime value of your customers, but there's no getting around that upfront expense. The faster growing you are as a SaaS company, the faster your burn rate will be. And that's just a law of SaaS growth. Mm -hmm. yep. The second thing is that when you're thinking about bootstrapping, you also need to contemplate that while building that lifestyle business, slow and steady might sound nice. If somebody else comes along, if a venture funded competitor comes along and eats your lunch, mm -hmm. you may not actually have a defensible place in the marketplace long-term. And you know, almost paradoxically, the, um, the, the, the safe approach of building this lifestyle business actually might be the most dangerous path. Mm -hmm. You might be further ahead swinging for the fences and going to be the winner in the market, go to be the dominant player in the market, because there's this virtuous cycle in SaaS where the winner tends to take everything. There's yep. a winner takes most, winner takes all kind of dynamic. And don't you guys want to be the winner? And, mm -hmm. and it was a really pivotal change in our, our perspective where we said, yeah, let's, let's, let's go after that, that big audacious goal. Let's, let's raise some money. Let's swing for the fences and let's try to be the categorical winner in this space. Let's try to not only be the winner, but create this new vision for even how lawyers use technology overall. So so back to your original question of, yeah. you know, 2008, 2009, 
how did this shape our thinking? It originally shaped our thinking in a very conservative way. We, we mm -hmm. said, you know, we don't need external money. Even if we needed external money, we wouldn't be able to get it anyhow because everyone's in a bomb shelter worried about the, the economy collapsing. Let's just go and build this thing. And then in, in what felt like this deus ex machina kind of moment with Christoph's email, uh, you know, we were able to access funding, uh, get on the other side of the financial crisis, and, and really saw this thing, this thing blow up. But what I talk about internally frequently as well is just the fact that, you know, I, th I think founding the company to your, to your original point, Chris, like it seems like there's a lot of great companies that came out of that 2008, 2009 era. You know, there's, there's companies like Dropbox, there's companies like Airbnb that, that came, uh, Stripe was founded around that time and just got valued at almost a hundred billion dollar <laughs> valuation, you know, like it's a good vintage. And, and I, I think what I've talked to with other founders from that era as well is that the being born in a financial crisis like that uh, instilled some grit and instilled some scrappiness in our organizational DNA that, that persisted to today. And I, I think even when COVID hit and we had every right to get knocked on our ass as an organization, um, you know, Clio was super resilient and, you know, didn't miss a beat when we, you know, it was just about a year ago to the day that we sent everyone home on March 13th. And, you know, when we reopened for business on Monday, the company, like I said, didn't miss a beat. Everyone was mm -hmm. just in, in, the, in the mix dealing with lots of challenges left and right, both professionally and personally, but uh, you were able to, to navigate that crisis really effectively. And, and I felt like, um, you know, as a, a founder that had been through at least a recession before and a, a downward cycle before, it equipped me to navigate this, uh, this uncertainty and potential um, turbulence with some, some tools that, that other founders that you know, if you founded a company after 2010, 10, all you've known is a 11 year bull run more or yep. less. Right. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I felt like it was some useful perspective and a little bit of scar tissue that I was able to, uh, to, to fall back on. That's that honestly, that's, that's an awesome story. And I, well, you know, you might be my age, maybe a little bit younger, but I was, I mean, I, I, you know, dropped out of school to, well, grad school to do the, to do the first startup thing during the dot-com age when it seemed yep. like you could fall yep. down and make money. And honestly, I think yep. that scarred us a lot because not, not, I think the best part was when we couldn't raise the money because people started realizing, Hey, that's just a dumb idea. Pets.com or, <laughs> right. you know, that sort of thing. Like, yeah, this the isn't, pets. This isn't era, well exactly. thought out here. Uh, you don't need $150 million to just change your name. Um, but I think it made us a lot like, well, it's interesting. I mean, you reflected on the fact that you said you didn't want to take any investment. And I had the exact same out of the dot-com thing because I'm like, I just, I, I, again, I had a company back then. We went through the, 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 the roll of a jigger. And when you get out of it, you're like, no, I just want to keep the company. I just want to keep steering it. I don't want any of the silliness that happened out of there. And I'm wondering, did, did you go through any of that? Did you live through any of the dot-com stuff in a professional way instead of a student way? No, I was, uh, you know, just graduating from my master's degree when the dot-com bust happened. So I, I kind of 
avoided you know the the insanity of of both the boom and the and the bust and mm-hmm. and kind of came you know my my professional career started right out of my undergrad where I I joined a company called Konomics mm-hmm. and they were doing life sciences software so about cool. as far removed from the dot com insanity as <laughs> oh, you can yeah. imagine but I got exposed to early product development concepts I got to run a, a product development team I got to get I got exposed to uh, I got exposed to some ideas around fundraising. I got to see the fundraising process and we raised you know, a million dollars for the company. So that's where I'd say I caught the startup bug. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and then, you know, when we, when I eventually left that company to pull shoot and go do Clio full-time, that was more or less when the financial crisis hit. And I thought, oh, that was, that was perfect timing. I just left <laughs> this, this secure, great secure job, job, you know, just got a mortgage. My wife just had our first kid, you know, and I uh, uh, decided to, to start my own company. And, uh, you know, I, I would say for, for me, the, the thinking around bootstrapping and not wanting to bring in external capital, mm-hmm. um, was really framed by this, this, you know, David Hannemeyer, Hanson, Jason Freed, 37 signals kind of thinking, which was, uh, which was a pretty simple concept, which is the best way to measure if you've got product market fit is if there's a customer that's willing to hand you over money for your product. Mm -hmm. And just doing that simple exchange is a really, a really effective way of, of measuring whether you've got that product market fit. And they were also, you know, I, I would say like with the benefit of hindsight, having worked with a lot of, lot of very great venture capitalists, they were also cynical about VCs. You know, they talked about VCs as, as vulture capitalists, you know, mm-hmm. people that would just come in and, you know, fire you as CEO, bring in their own people, take control of your company. Like, yeah. and look, there's been a lot of really shitty stuff that VCs have done. There, There is a lot of uh, uh, you know, stuff to support a cynical view of VCs. But if you find the right ones, uh, you know, what, what we've discovered, at, you know, through our journey, at least, is they can actually be a really helpful catalyst to your growth. Oh, I bet. I bet. Well, it's, you're all aligned for growth in that front. So, so I did that. Well, you know what? You, um, you, apparently, you recently changed your mission statement. Is that correct? Recently? We'll yes. We just, Maybe? just last week updated last week? our... Just okay. last week. Uh, so this is to transform statement. to transform the legal experience for all. That's, That's right. right. That's right. To, yeah. to, why? Why the change? And I mean, I understand and love the simplicity of it, but why? Why the change? Yeah, and and maybe you know the the best way of talking about the new mission statement is actually maybe to contrast it with our earlier mission statement, Perfect. which was to transform the legal. Sorry, give me a second, Chris. I. Mm-hmm. No worries. Need to tell my kids to quiet down. I've been there. <laughs> hey guys, I'm doing a podcast. Can you quiet down, please? Yeah, sure. Sorry about that, Chris. It's no, 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 spring no, no, no. break for our kids, and uh, I've got the same game. I've got this... I've got a four, 13 and a fourteen year old at home too. That's why I'm at the office today. So I take that. Yeah, yeah, no, I I'm envious right now. I hear you. I hear you. We'll tell you what. What do I start the question again? Does that make sense? Sure, no problem. Okay. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So, so last week now I've learned that you've changed uh, your mission statement, and now the new one is to transform the legal experience for all. Why the change? Yeah, so 
a few things maybe I'll, I'll, I'll contrast our new mission statement with our old mission statement, which was transform the practice of law for good. And, and what we meant by transforming the practice of law for good was, uh, you know, for good had a, a, a clever double meaning where we, we wanted it to be both our team's dent in the universe, you know, where we wanted that to be our permanent impact on the legal industry. And, and the second meaning of for good was, was you know, to, to make legal better, to help make clients happier, to help clients see better legal outcomes, to help make lawyers more productive and more successful and better able to deliver those, those legal services to their clients. And, and really, you know, over, over the course of the last 12 years, and this was a North Star that's navigated us for, uh, for most of Clio's journey to this point, I, I think what we started to feel was that, you know, it was kind of mission accomplished. Like we launched Clio in 2008, helped bring cloud computing to legal, helped see legal be regard or cloud computing rather be regarded as uh, an acceptable tool for legal professionals to use in running their practice. And if, we really have transformed how lawyers and other legal professionals get their work done. We have transformed the practice of law for good. So we started to see, you know, number one, I, I think a mission should be a, a big, hairy, audacious goal that feels out of reach. And we started to see the impact we're having and feeling like, hey, we, we're actually doing a good job of this. Mm -hmm. and, and the second piece, and, and this is the, the more important of the two, we saw in the events of 2020, you know, when COVID hit, we saw ourselves being pulled in a direction where we were asking ourselves, how can we make a bigger and better impact, a more profound impact on society? How, how can we increase the societal good that Clio is delivering? And, and when we started thinking more expansively about our role in the overall justice system and in access to justice, we started to see how we could start to incorporate more tools um, and, and start to change our thinking around the impact our tools could have on legal consumers in particular as it relates to their ability to access legal services and to make legal services more equitable and more accessible by the consumers that that need them and that's really at the heart of number one some of the technology projects we invested in in 2020 we for example partnered with the American Bar Association mm -hmm. partnered with the New York State Bar Association to help connect consumers with pro bono lawyers that would help them free of any charge navigate their legal challenges that related to COVID. Um, you know, we, 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 we helped develop models for automatically linking consumers with the right lawyers that could help them with their legal problems. Amazing. Um, we worked with, with courts uh, to help them bring technology to bear to navigate their specific challenges with COVID-19. So we started thinking about the impact Clio could have, not just on individual law firms and kind of within the walls of a law firm and how they practice law, but more broadly in terms of how we could impact access to justice. And, and I, would, I would consider this a, a, an evolution of our original mission statement, Chris, where mm -hmm. It, it's it's just a more expansive view of of that mission statement. Where if we think of, if we execute on this new mission statement well, we're going to be in a position where we're helping 
lawyers be more productive and more effective, Mm -hmm. help clients, first of all, access the legal services they need, and then work with a, hopefully a lawyer that's using Clio and effortlessly and seamlessly and with a very low amount of friction access those legal services. And as a, as a byproduct of doing those two things really well, we're going to have this positive societal impact, help improve access to justice and transform the legal experience for all. So it's really about impacting all the stakeholders in this, in this overall equation and having a positive outcome. And and, and maybe just popping back to the macro level perspective here too, one thing that's that's really important for anyone outside the legal industry to, to recognize is that this, this industry uh, has a lot of work to do in terms of actually delivering legal services in a way that consumers are able to consume them and the way they want to consume them. Mm-hmm. We, we can look at World Justice Project data, for example, that tells us that 77% of all legal issues that consumers had last year went unresolved by a lawyer. So there's millions of legal <laughs> problems that are going unsolved by lawyers. And then what we see through our own legal trends report data is that the majority of lawyers, 80% plus of lawyers, tell us the number one thing they need to help grow their law firm is more clients. So, you know, an economist would look at this and say, okay, on the the demand side, you have, you know, 77% of the market that's not able to see a solution to its problems. Enormous demand. On the the supply side, where you have the people that can actually help solve those problems, you have 80% of the the supply side saying, you know, we need more demand. And and like I said, any economist would look at that and say, what's going on? Like, what's broken here? And there is something broken. You know, I say, even though the or I often comment that even though the legal profession is, is hundreds, thousands of years old, it's, it's got nascent product market fit. Like it's just <laughs> starting to figure out how we might be able to help solve the typical legal problems and challenges that most consumers have. And that's what, that's what Clio is here for. We're, help, we're here to help solve that product market fit problem for the legal industry. That's amazing. I mean, you're you're creating huge impact. It's going beyond, you know, just the SMBs because, you know, now you're you're helping the individuals who are seeking help from the SMBs. You're you're creating, you know, synergies between all the parties. You are, I mean, we shouldn't say the greater good because we removed that part from the uh or the word good from 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 your uh from your mission statement, but you know, you're creating good and and I can't be more proud of just hearing that you're doing that. That's that's fantastic. Well, when when you came up with that new mission statement because we've gone through these exercises and you do not take these lightly these are super right. important, arguable conversations. I mean, people will get yeah. heated about it. How many people did you have in the room and how many is too many when you come up with a mission statement? Yeah, I actually think, you know, for, for us, it was a small handful of, of people that I think, you know, is interesting uh, where, where one of our team members hearing me speak about the mission and some of the impact we we're having over the course of COVID um, actually shot me an email and said, hey, I like your message at the town hall really resonated with me. I love how we're connecting what we're doing to our mission. But in thinking about, you know, this, this broader impact we're hoping to have, I actually think the, the mission statement is actually as audacious as it sounds, maybe too limited in its, in its scope. And so for me, that was a really like authentic and genuine way to start critically re-examining the mm-hmm. mission statement is if it felt 
you know, maybe maybe add a sync with what we were doing to uh, to our own team. And then, uh, you know, I, I brought that to a, a very small team of folks internally that uh, think carefully about our, our, our values and, and our other like supporting pillars of how we think strategically about the business. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we came up with this idea of transforming the legal experience for all, which um, we then socialized with the rest of the executive team and, and, and people nodded their heads, you know, like, yeah, that, that, that nails it. That, that really captures what we're looking for. And even though there was some, you know, as you pointed out, Chris, these can often be fraught conversations. You know, there's a lot of emotion attached to mission statements. There's a lot of care that goes into developing them. Um, but I, I think you also need to know when you've, you know, when you've outgrown them or when it is time to, to evolve your mission statement. And, and for us, what, you know, maybe one of the biggest themes that came out of 2020 was thinking about inclusivity and, you know, thinking about this idea that um, how can we embed the for good part, the, the benefit we're trying to deliver in our mission statement? How, how can we embed that, but also make our mission statement more inclusive? Because that that's really the key shift there is we don't want to just make individual law firms better or more productive or more profitable. We don't want to just make some clients or a subset of clients see better legal outcomes or have better access to justice. We really wanted to make this as broad in scope and as inclusive as possible, thinking about access to legal services as, as a fundamental human right. That's something that, that all of us should expect to be able to access. And if we execute well on our, our new mission, we're gonna be executing on that inclusivity piece, which, which to me is, is the most important thing to be, uh, and inspirational to think about as an organization. You know, when we're, when we're hiring people, when we're talking about this internally, it lights people up. And that's at the end of the day, what you want your mission statement to, to do and, and think, man, if we pull this off, we're gonna have changed the world in a really positive way. And that's, that's the, the litmus test that the new mission statement passed internally when we, when we socialized it and talked about it. I love this. I mean, think, think about this in kind of, you know, home terms. There's this Canadian startup, you can't see my air quotes, those who are listening, but my Canadian startup who's democratizing the whole legal industry, we'll say in North America and in, in the States and making it more impactful for everyone. I mean, that's, you can't do something better than, you know, thinking, Hey, it's just two of us that wants to have a lifestyle business, right? Like this is yeah, and a much bigger the, thing. <laughs> the, the, the other thing I'd comment on Chris is, is like our ambitions grew over time. Like we didn't want to be this world changing company on day one. Like we mm-hmm. had, we had very humble beginnings, you know, and, and, uh, you know, is it, it was, uh, a vision that scaled along with our ability to create that kind of impact. So I, I think if you're an early stage start startup founder, like mm-hmm. don't get hung up on, you know, <laughs> Hey, what's my like world transforming vision going to be like a, a great initial goal is, Hey, can I get ramen profitable? Can I put food on the table for my, my kids and my family? Um, mm-hmm. but, but keep, keep scaling up that vision as your ability to realize that vision grows. And I, I think that's something that can be really, uh, really organic. And certainly our uh, ambitions for, for Clio were pretty humble to start with. 
Oh, well, you know, one thing that I've, I've been like, I've met Cleo people over the year, we, we, we engaged in a small project together about seven years ago. And the thing that really impressed me, I remember about, that you know, it was a really yeah, cool project. It was so cool. We just couldn't make it actually work besides being a cool technology. But <laughs> yeah, the thing is, is I was so impressed by George, like all these guys you had, these people that were working, with, they were so good. Like you just talked to them like, oh, you know it. Like, you know, you're a product person. You had all the questions like right away that it took us a month to evolution, you know, this product. And I think you've surrounded yourself by, right. by fantastic people, which I think is is imperative. And I think as you grow, it's it, it, even more imperative. But the one thing that I I, I just want to touch on was your office. Okay, you threw. So we had with with uh, with video, the, the Vancouver iOS Developers Industry Association meetup, um, you hosted one of the best meetups we've ever had once. And the reason why is not just because your office is awesome, and it, and, and it is awesome, is because you went the extra mile that everyone went, that's so cool. Because your office is just kind of, um, I guess it's close to BCIT would be a good way to kind of in between. Yeah, that's right. Just across the road from BCIT. Yeah. And there's, there was no direct SkyTrain to it, but you met everyone at SkyTrain with a super nice bus driver who took everyone to your office, fed us really nice, you know, had great meeting. We had, uh, I think was it Kevin was one of the speakers who gave a great yep. presentation um, at the time. And it just blew everyone away. Like, honestly, I remember getting back on the sky train and there's about 20 of us and everyone was saying how that was like the coolest experience. Um, but here's a question now, you know, that must've attracted a lot of attention for people that want to work for you. Do you need things like that now? Do you need to go the extra mile or do people just go, Hey, you're, you're Cleo. I want to be part of your mission. I mean, you're doing great things. And from what I hear, even greater things than I knew until now, I want to be part of the mission. Is that a much easier way to convince people now to be yeah. part of your mission? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's still, it's still, it's both, you know, I, I would say one, one, tailwind we've gotten over the last few years as I do think our, uh, our, our reputation has grown and, and we've gone from, you know, Cleo who in 2008 <laughs> to a point where, you know, most people have heard about Cleo now and our, our, our reputation certainly grown in the, the Vancouver and the Canadian technology landscape, which is, which is awesome to, to, to see. So we, you know, we don't have to spend the first five minutes of every conversation explaining, you know, who we are. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But but I still think the importance of doing those uh, those meetups and building community and and we'll be right back at it as, as soon as we're on the other side of this this COVID mm-hmm. craziness um, is is you realize that you know yeah you want to work at a place with a mission and a vision that you believe in you want to have impact you want to have uh, you know you want to leave behind a legacy that that you mm-hmm. can be proud of both at the For company sure. level and on the the impact of the world level and I think we've got a great, a great story to tell on that front. But at the end of the day, you also realize like, and, and this is what's so important for, for prospective hires is, is they want to like, and, and want to work with the people at the company they're joining. And that, that personal connection, you know, seeing a team that you feel like you can learn from seeing a team that you not only can learn from, but that wants to teach you that wants to, you know, you really believe in something we talk about a lot about Clio is we want people to, to join us and do the best work of their careers, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that you can't get through a, a recruiting website. You know, that's something that you get a feel for. And I think mm-hmm. what you got a feel for at that meetup, Chris, was like the Clio culture that you feel kind yeah. of viscerally, like even, 
trying to describe it right like it's not like it's not the bus ride it's not the food it's like yeah you felt something cool (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you felt something that resonated with you and that's just really hard to communicate through a a web page or a hiring video so I, i i think like that's that's what we we try to create as often as possible is like and and again i'm i'm inside the echo chamber so i always try to like check this a little bit but like i do really feel like we've got something special at clio and it's something that you can only really truly feel um you know when you're when you're in a room with other other cleons you know and, and we we see it at these these recruiting events we see it at meetups uh, we, we, we do a big user conference every year, um, mm-hmm. and it was virtual this year at, or last year, rather, it's going to be virtual again this year. Uh, but we bring four or 5,000 of our customers together into a room with a couple of hundred Cleons and, and customers say the same thing. They're like, wow, like the culture at Clio is something special. And like, in fact, some customers say like, can I join it? Like, how do I become part of this thing? And uh, it, it's, it's something I'm really proud of and, and it's I feel lucky to have, uh, you know, such an integral part of what, what makes us successful, I think, is, is the culture that you get little glimpses into, I think, at, at events like that meetup. Yeah, amazing. And the culture is so important. And the, the other thing I remember is thinking, okay, so you had like half of the building and IBM had half, I think it was that, IBM that had right. half the building. And I remember after the meetup going, I bet you IBM has less of that building soon. How much <laughs> is IBM still there? And if they are, how much of that building do they have left? Yeah. So it's, it's funny you mentioned that, Chris, we, you know, we've, we've talked about us doing this like hostile takeover of the building where, <laughs> You know, initially IBM led us into one floor and we've kind of been whittling down their ranks and, um, you know, reducing them to first three floors, then two floors, then one floor. Uh, and and as of last year, actually, uh, Clio has that entire building uh, and, and, and one floor in the office building across the road from it as well. So, um, you know, our office space requirements will obviously be, you know, much changed uh, post COVID, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. um, it's, it, it's not because we've got any reduced headcount. We've actually got more people, uh, working for us now than, than when COVID hit, uh, but just because we'll be using our offices in a different way, uh, Damn. and, and supporting more remote work and supporting more flexible work arrangements and so on. But, uh, but yeah, we've got our, our Burnaby campus, uh, and, and future expansion area, uh, yeah. secured. That's for sure. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. I just don't want to hear you guys have a have a, a Clio song like IBM had a song in the 50s, right? That's that's not going to happen, I assume. <laughs> no, I promise, no no Clio song, not under my watch, at least. <laughs> okay, well, I could be slightly disappointed. Okay, well, you know, what? I got one last question for you, and this is this is you know kind of the theme of what we're trying to do in terms of understanding business in Vancouver. But you are a University of Alberta, you know, go Edmonton yep. grad, an Oilers fan. Okay. You know, I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, You're destroying us. So I understand that. Um, (laughs) And I've read that your favorite restaurant, and I'm going to butcher this, I apologize, is Tan Tan Oriental Noodle House in Edmonton. That's right. Tan Tan -tan, uh, Oriental Noodle House. You're you're close. Perfect. Perfect. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So why? Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say, and and their beef satay soup in particular is like the the best best food on the planet. Yep. Okay, next time we're in Edmonton with the team, I'm definitely going to take them. I'm definitely going to take them there. Oh, so that that is good. Yeah, I'll that send you the, the list of things to order. <laughs> Fantastic. But here's the question. Why is Clio set up in Vancouver instead of Edmonton then? And would Edmonton have worked the same? 
Yeah. So um, great question. So I'll, I'll rewind all the way back to 2008. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when Ryan and I were founding, founding Clio, he had actually relocated from Edmonton to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one interesting little factoid about me and Ryan is we, we actually have known each other since we were eight years old when we Amazing. met in grade three uh, in the playground at Rio Terrace Elementary School in, in Edmonton. We, we became friends, uh, eventually best friends, and uh, decided uh, you know, a long time ago that we wanted to start a business together and played around with a bunch of different toy businesses uh, over the course of, of, of junior high and high school. Uh, Ryan ended up going to Vancouver uh, for his schooling. He went to SFU uh, to get a kinesiology degree. And I, I think he's try still trying to figure out why he got a kinesiology degree. Uh, and then on to UBC for his, his MBA. Uh, and, and as he was wrapping up the MBA was when him and I started cooking up this idea for Clio. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I had, uh, you know, finished up my master's degree in machine learning at the U of A. And, uh, you know, eventually, so we started building Clio completely distributed. So for the first year and a half or so of building Clio, I was in Edmonton, Ryan was in Vancouver, and we actually made our first handful of hires over the course of, of 2008, 2009, uh, with people working from home. So one mm -hmm. way to think about this is we were like 12 <laughs> years ahead of the curve on this distributed <laughs> yeah, work trend that. <laughs> that that is all the rage right now. Um, you know, with like we had people working in Powell River, we had people working at home in Edmonton, down in Calgary, and so on. But something we felt when we hit around 10 people hiring them under that that kind of regime was that it was really hard to instill culture. Like we mm -hmm. wanted Clio to have this really strong culture. And we actually felt in the team we'd hired already, there was this really strong culture, but we weren't sure how to scale it to 20 people, to 30 people, to 100 people, and felt like we needed an office to do that. And then, you know, the, the, the thought process we went through back in 2008 was, uh, all right, we need to pick, or it was 2009, actually, we need to pick a city that we're going to locate this thing in, which city is it going to be? And, and built the pro-con matrix for Vancouver at Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And there's two factors that, that really swayed toward Vancouver. One was we were trying to raise venture capital and getting a VC to get on a plane from San Francisco to Vancouver is a whole lot easier than getting them <laughs> on a plane to Edmonton. Uh, at the time, there wasn't even direct flights. Um, oh, and yeah. and uh, you know, getting a VC into a minus 40 uh, Edmonton winter could be a deal ending proposition. <laughs> Uh, and the second piece was talent. Uh, we, we just knew that we wanted as large a pool of developers, designers, uh, other talent available to us in, uh, as, as possible. And Vancouver had an edge on that front. But um, something, so I moved my life and my, my wife and my kids from Edmonton to Vancouver. Uh, we're, we're here on the North Shore now and, mm -hmm. and, and loving every minute of it here. Uh, but we still got, uh, a big team back in Alberta. So we've got uh, still, uh, uh, you know, about 10 or 15 employees in Edmonton. Uh, we founded an entire office and a development uh, center of excellence in Calgary. And uh, we have a huge sales and marketing office in Toronto and, and something, you know, maybe a scaling lesson I would share to, to conclude on 
I think any Canadian company that's thinking about scaling to, uh, you know, hundreds of people or beyond needs to think about a multi-city strategy in Canada. And, oh yeah, um, you know, today more than ever, the the particular city that you call uh, your quote unquote headquarters, you know, do- doesn't matter as much as it used to. And you can get, yeah. uh, Canada's just got a phenomenal talent base and it's, it's a, um, a great place to, to build a world-class company. That is an amazing, amazing note to end on because I agree. Canada is an amazing place to build uh, great companies. And, and um, you know, thank you. I mean, honestly, thank you. This is such an interesting conversation today. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm nothing but, you know, I, I feel proud. I shouldn't. I mean, I'm not part of Clio, but I'm part of Vancouver and I'm part of the ecosystem. And to recognize, yeah, you know, absolutely. the huge gr- gravity, as you put it, that was been created by Clio Um it creates huge opportunities for the rest of us. And, and, you know, and you should be proud of, you know, what you've created for all of us in, in, in Canada. So th- thank you, uh, you know, from yeah, one yeah, to another. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for the kind words, Chris. And thanks for being part of that ecosystem because it is really uh, an ecosystem at the end of the day. And, you know, we, we want to see, we want, we want to be part of planting the seeds of the next 10 Clios. So, you know, I, I think that's, uh, uh, something I'm always keen to do in, in whatever way I can help help support that goal. Beautiful. Well, Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcasts and subscribe on Apple Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast focusing on the business of technology in Canada. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we'd love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at TTT, that's three T's, dot studio, S-T-U-D-I-O. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us on social media at TTT underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.